The Higher Side Chats doesn't start with underwear ads or guilt-tripping donation pleas, nor would I ever commit the cardinal sin of podcasting and interrupt the flow mid-show to show you an unrelated sponsor. But the free first-hour episodes do have to start with a little PSA before we get into it to ever so quickly remind slash inform listeners both old slash new that you're about to get into what I'm sure is a great first hour of a high-level interview, but that means you're missing half the show. If you like what we do around here, get yourself a THC Plus membership and listen to the full two-hour interviews as they were really designed to be and as I know you would enjoy them most. Give a little and actually get a little more in return of the thing you're actually engaging with. Five episodes every month, plus forum access, community comments, downloads to all the closing cover songs, a plus show RSS feed to use with any private RSS feed supported app, and the occasional joint session bonus shows, which include the messages you might leave me about your own theories, experiences, or otherworldly encounters at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail. If you're not quite sure, if you just want to feel us out, or if you're only here for this particular episode, no worries. New first-time subscribers get a seven-day free trial when you sign up at thehiresidechats.com. Cancel anytime. Try it out, because it's so important to feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go. And with that said, let's get on with it already, huh? In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Rock me like a hurricane, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, here to explore the strange and mysterious world between the daily grind and the nightly news. And a key component of that is the age-old alien question. We see them in the sky, we hear from the witnesses, and we know there's a cover-up to some degree, but we just don't know what they know. Of course, most of the juicy stuff is likely limited to the invisible college and the deep corporate nexus we are all too familiar with. But the strangest thing about the UFO-UAP question in recent years is why the big machine wants to talk about it now, in the most chaotic years of my lifetime. The state-sponsored New York Times has run stories seeding their narrative, military men have made some media rounds talking about their experiences, and we had a tell-us-what-you-know 180-day countdown stuffed into the COVID relief bill. Of course, to anyone who's done their own research, it all seems pretty tame, but it's not the stonewalled silence and denial we've gotten for decades, and the timing is just all that more curious. On top of that, as today's returning powerhouse guest Richard Dolan has been pointing out lately, are the strange ways humanity seems to be getting pushed towards the alien archetype. Frail beings that have neglected their physicality, a calculated weeding out of independent thought and more subdued emotions, a reliance on technology and digital everything to interface with each other, a sort of hive mind behavior which might be further facilitated through the introduction of cybernetic implants, more and more gender-neutral or non-binary talk, as these beings so often appear. A completely centralized governmental structure and a more uniform appearance, as if the aliens all found the perfect CRISPR settings. Of course, we're not there yet, but when I dare to look down the road that's being paved for us, I see the similarities, and I think Richard might be onto something I'm not really hearing anyone else talk about. 
You know him as a knowledgeable historian and one of the brightest minds to ever tackle the subject of UFOs seriously. He's the author of Cornerstone UFO Tomes like UFOs in the National Security State, Volumes 1 and 2, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, A Fresh Guide to an Ancient Mystery, AD, After Disclosure, The Secret Space Program and Breakaway Civilization, and most recently, The Alien Agendas, a speculative analysis of those visiting Earth. He also appears in two great new documentaries, one titled The Observers, which really covers the spread of interesting angles to the alien question, the technological, the biblical, the cosmic, and the spiritual. And then there's another one called Secret Space UFO, Rise of the TR-3B, that covers the story of what seems to be the most well-known deep state reverse-engineered example of an alien craft. The hub of all Richard's work can always be found at richarddolanmembers.com, and it is a real pleasure to have him back. The strange stuff historian, flying saucer sleuth, and national security state critic extraordinaire Richard Dolan, fighting the good fight as always. Welcome back to the higher side. Hi, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me on. Wow, what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, man. I try. All in a day's work. And I am really psyched to get to talk to you again. You're one of my favorite people. And the way you've been talking lately only kicks my respect for you up another notch. Funny enough, our first interview was in late March of 2020, pretty much right before the world changed at a very rapid pace. And we did end that interview with some wise words from you warning about the direction the world was going. In fact, to paraphrase those comments, you said, I'm very concerned about the technological transformation of our society and what it's doing to us. AI, 5G tech, a 24-7 nonstop surveillance state, turning us into a different sort of human, one without initiative and one without will. There will be no jobs for people. They'll be living off an income given from the state, so they're controlled by the state. And the state does not want willful, determined people, and they'll erode that with shit food, shit entertainment, and fantasy games. And if I could stop one thing in the world, I would stop that. Well, <laughs> damn, I am not one to usually pick up a conversation from where we left it two years ago, but I'm just in awe of how relevant and timely that ended up being, and I can't imagine you feel any better about those concerns today than you did then. Oh, man. Wow, thank you for quoting me there. I didn't. Well, these have been issues of mine I've seen coming for a long time. I've even more than a decade ago when I don't think anyone was talking about this. I was concerned about the future creation of what I was calling a global police state back in 2010, 2009, 2008, as I recall. And actually, since our talk in 2020, I mean, things have just gone so far, so bad, faster than any of us, certainly faster than I could have predicted. I mean, just breathtaking speed to watch. What I've been calling it in the last year is a global revolution, a top-down directed global revolution, which we've never seen before in human history. I mean, there have been global empires, you know, you had the Roman Empire, there was Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan tried, you know, lots of people tried. But what we're seeing now in the modern era is a technocratic, I would say basically Davos-directed global globalist revolution that goes across national borders, that is obviously synchronized. I don't think there's any question about that. That is geared toward exactly the kind of goals that we were talking about two years ago in our chat. And it's just gotten much worse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a historian should have these kind of concerns. And it's odd that so many don't. But when you made those comments, we'd never seen a national lockdown. We'd never seen 
the American government say these smaller businesses must be closed, but these big corporate businesses can still be open. That's right. We never had people so afraid to be around each other that digital technology facilitated all interaction. Hey, just use Zoom. It's safer, even though the person you might want to talk to is just across town. You know, we never heard about vaccine passports or mandates or quarantine camps. And I've just been a bit shell-shocked by how coordinated it all was and how quickly it came. But maybe we fold in your latest book here because the alien agendas, a speculative analysis of those visiting Earth, does get into this a bit as you've been talking about a fourth phase of human evolution. Explain that a bit if you could. Yeah, thanks. I've studied, I'm deeply interested in the whole history of the human species. It's just one of my things that I love to look at. And when you look at the long history of the human race, you know, it's funny, paleoanthropologists now argue that the human species, people who look just like us, have existed for more than 300,000 years now. That number keeps getting pushed back. When I was a kid, it was like, I remember learning about Cro-Magnon Man, as I used to say it, which I think was like 40,000 years ago. Well, we go back way farther than that. So over 300. And for nearly all of that time, and plus you could go back two million years. I mean, we were as Homo erectus. They were essentially human, earlier versions. But what we did for nearly all of that time was we existed in one phase, which was as hunters and gatherers. That's how we evolved. You know, you'd get a big sharpened stick and you'd take down a big animal and <laughs> you'd hunt it and you'd kill it and you'd drag it back. And, you know, we would have small groups maybe 10, 15 people that would know each other for their whole lives. And this is how human beings developed. I'm not saying that's how we're always supposed to be, but that's how we evolved. And then, you know, roughly about 10,000 years ago, or even a little less, roughly, we started moving into a second phase or stage two of human species, which we can call the agricultural revolution. We domesticated plants and animals. And what that did was it transformed human society in an incredibly dramatic way. I mean, we started living in much, much, much larger groups, cities. The first really major city was Uruk, which I think the estimate is they had about 50,000 people at one point. And, you know, by the standards of the ancient world, I mean, that's just unheard of. And lots of other cities developed and you have stratification, hierarchies, different classes of people. And bringing in diseases and lots of other things that transformed us, including we developed a smaller brain as a result because brains are expensive and people didn't need quite as large a brain as they did in hunter-gatherer times. Many other changes happened, but we developed this new phase of existence that gave us all of our civilizations from ancient Egypt, Roman Empire, the Renaissance, and all of that was stage two, as I would call it. Obviously, there are lots of differences between living in medieval France and ancient Egypt, but I would argue the fundamental form of existence was really quite similar, quite remarkably consistent. And it was a good way. It was a, you know, turned out to be a pretty good system. It gave us writing, it gave us the wheel, it gave us metallurgy, it gave us all of the things that we call civilization. And then only a couple of hundred years ago, we moved into what I would call stage three of humanity which would be, let's call it science and industry. You know, Galileo and Descartes and Isaac Newton and then the English Industrial Revolution really transformed our world, gave us a new cosmology, new modes of living, new ways of thinking. And I would argue that 
that's what we were born into. And, and I would say that wherever you're living in the world, obviously lots of variations, but the fundamental forms, again, were really remarkably similar. And now I think we're moving into a fourth stage, which might best be characterized as a transhuman stage, but it's much more than transhumanism. And as you were quoting me from a couple of years ago, it includes 5G or beyond 5G, smart surveillance technology that is already becoming ubiquitous. So goodbye privacy, a kind of centralized propaganda system customized for each person. So taking Edward Bernays' public relations idea of crowd control to a level undreamed of by anybody in the past. And then on top of that, you've got genetic engineering, you've got artificial intelligence that's becoming very, very powerful. Maybe we can talk about that. And a whole system, and of course, then what economists call the robopocalypse. That's not the Terminator coming to kill you. That's just the Terminator coming to take your job. Algorithms basically increasingly replacing human beings in the workforce. And then add in augmented reality, virtual reality, you know, kind of ready player one scenario where people increasingly are going to be living in fantasy world. The meta comes to mind, the metaverse. So you've got a situation where it's not difficult to see large masses of humanity with really nothing to do productively. How do you develop meaning in that type of a world? It's a good question to ask. Where you've got this problem of directionless people that, from the point of view of those people at the top, need to be controlled and guided and channeled into some way. And all of that, I think, is going to require a totalitarian solution, if I can use that word from the point of view of the people running this, a totalitarian solution to the problem of humanity. And that means the necessary end of what we've called freedom, freedom of conscience, freedom of dissent, and independence of thought, I think, all have to go by the board in this new situation in a world that's run by technocrats. So that's the world I see. Basically, humanity is one big anthill, if I want to put it that way. And this is why I think we're seeing a global revolution going on right now. You know, COVID comes along and people can argue, was that an accident? Was that intentional? Certainly, I don't think you can argue that it didn't come out of a lab at this point. I think it's pretty obvious to anyone who's looked at it, it came out of a laboratory. So you can say it was either planned or you could say there was an opportunistic direction taken by the Davos people, the great reset people, Klaus Schwab and his folks at the World Economic Forum, to reset humanity in the wet dream that they've always envisioned. I mean, this is a dream that's gone back for decades and decades. This isn't new. So the idea is to create a human hive mind. And if someone thinks that that's crazy talk, I would direct them to the work of transhumanist pioneers going back to the 1960s at the latest, who are talking explicitly about the wonderful future goal of creating a human hive mind. This is actually true. <laughs> And they thought it was a wonderful thing. This is how we unify humanity. This is how we become stronger and better. And I think we're seeing it now. And I've wondered about this a lot. Is this an inevitability of human development? Should we just lay back and accept it because there's no other way? Or is there another way or a better way to preserve human freedom to the extent that it's possible in a highly, highly centralized technocratic world? We haven't even gotten into the whole UFO ET question yet, but what we're looking at here is a very swift, globally coordinated technocratic revolution, I would say, against the old school humanity, you know, the classical unenhanced human being 
that has existed since time immemorial and is now undergoing some really dramatic changes. And this global revolution is not just political, it's not just economic, it's not just financial, but it's cultural. It has to be cultural as well because you've got to get the people to go along with it. So you have to create a new human psyche, as it were. And these people, you know, they, and I say these people, I'm talking about the globalist elite that controls nearly every single national government in the world. I mean, there's a few exceptions. And they do believe that the human being is ultimately a plastic, malleable creature that can be molded to their ends. And they are, I think, actively trying to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like they have just been waiting for the technology to catch up to their ideas, which are quite old. And it's a popular thought to talk about alien intervention and genetic engineering in the ancient past, where maybe they fast-tracked us from hunter-gatherers to more structured and organized communities. Maybe they were part of the phase development that you outlined there. But people use the terms ascended masters or civilizing trickster gods, which could very well have been aliens. They just come from the sky, hard to differentiate some kind of god from an alien or a spirit or something. But if this has happened before and we've been under a low-level surveillance campaign throughout human history... It's not that big of a stretch to think that they could also be involved to some degree in the new phase change too, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I speculate a bit about this in my last book, The Alien Agendas, which came out a little more than a year ago. The idea about us being genetically modified, by the way, I did put that out as a possibility. I don't know if it's true, but I do think that there's a couple of odd things that happened to our species about 45,000 years ago roughly speaking, you know, human beings existed long before that, but our rate of innovation was practically nil before that. It was very, very slow. Compared with how we are used to living these days, it was essentially non-existent. And then about 45,000 years ago, a lot of things changed. So you start seeing evidence of very sophisticated cave art, for example, around that time. You start seeing evidence of music from that time, musical instruments, hollowed out bones and things like this, flutes. And you also get evidence, at least according to the paleoanthropologists, of the first instances of ritual behavior, ritualistic behavior, which to me is really key. That's like the human brain, the human mind switching on. You know, when you start seeing ritualistic behavior possibly happening around that time, and then, of course, followed by a mass amount of innovation, technological from that point, is undeniable. But it's as if something happened to us to give our ancestors and awareness of another dimension of reality. And I'm not saying it didn't happen before, but I don't see any evidence of it prior to that. But there's definite evidence from 45,000 years ago onward that human beings were becoming dialed into consciously to some kind of reality beyond what you could see here and now. So that's essentially, you could say, the beginnings of the human mind. Creativity, art, ritual, that is God. Right? God comes to human beings 45,000 years ago, you might argue. And so what got me thinking where we intervened with at around that time is the work of a late friend of mine. Her name was Colleen Clements. She taught here in Rochester where I live. She was a brilliant lady. She wrote a few books. They are admittedly a bit dense <laughs> to read, but uh, I adored Colleen. And she had this idea that we were tweaked by an extraterrestrial civilization sometime around then. And her research was that 
we have a gene, and actually all of this is true, we have a gene called the microcephalin gene, which one of the key things it does apparently is determine brain growth and size. And that that we know, genetically speaking, we've only had, they have to estimate the time that we've had it, but the midway estimate point is roughly about 40,000 years ago is when we got it. And the point about it is that geneticists argue it could only have come from an outside source, so through interbreeding. Now, we've, we know that we interbred with Neanderthals back then, and since she wrote her work, we've learned about another group called the Denisovans, and we certainly interbred with them as well. The Denisovans were very, very similar to Neanderthals. Now, we've sourced all the Neanderthal genetic code, and that microcephalin gene is not in there. We don't have as much Denisovan DNA to analyze, so we don't really, we can't rule them out as the source of this microcephalin gene, so maybe it's them. But if it isn't them, then we have to ask, who's the daddy? Who gave us this? At a time when our creativity just jumped to this completely new level. And so her theory, which I took up in my book, is that, yeah, it's at least worth considering that we got this from an outside source and that would be extraterrestrial. So we would be someone else's project. I think it's an interesting idea and it could be true. Now, what I would say beyond that to your larger point about have we been monitored at a low level, this is what I suggest in my last book. I think if I were to you know, look through all of the old stories, let's call them of UFO or what we might consider alien encounters, there do seem to be some very interesting encounters that took place in ancient times between human beings and other people who look like people, look like us, but were definitely not like us. And you could say, well, are these just mythological stories? Well, not all of them seem to be. Some of them took place during recorded history in which individuals were really quite explicit about the nature of their interaction with these other beings, which just seemed way, way beyond us. So if that's the case, we, you could say we were monitored at a low level by other human-like beings for a very long time. But really, what could they do with us? An alien that would take over planet Earth during Europe's medieval period, like what are they going to do, live in the unheated castles that we had there? I don't know if it was really that great a deal for them. But what I do believe is that starting a little over a century ago, when we really got going on our science and technology and became clearly moving on an exponential path, this is when you start seeing a variety of alien encounters occurring worldwide. And I hypothesize that it was our development, not just our tapping of the atomic bomb, by the way, which everyone talks about, but I think much more than that, much more broadly, our technological path that has gotten the attention of the neighborhood, so to speak. They've come in and think, ah, okay, these people, these humans, they were very primitive for a long time, but look what they've got. They've got the fire of Prometheus. They have science. They have the keys of the kingdom, and they're going to be joining our little club soon. So I think that we have gotten the attention of a variety of groups. And it's an odd thing because when you, um, now to your last point, but are they guiding this global revolution? I do think we really have to look long and hard at this possibility because it, there's a lot of it that makes sense. You know, we exist formally in a world of 200 nations. Of course, it doesn't really work like that. The United States dominates the large majority of them. Russia and China have their own spheres of influence, but it's really you have a few blocks of centralized power. And then, of course, there's beyond nations, you got the financial power. So we don't have 
the kind of fractured political landscape that the existence of 200 nations would suggest. But even so, if you're thinking of it from this alien point of view, you might be thinking, well, there's just, they need to be centralized so we can deal with them. We need a unified group here. And also they might be thinking, and we need to control it. Because after all, I mean, if humanity were just to go willy-nilly out with its technology, doing its thing in competition with nation against nation, hey, things could get a little violent. Things could get a little aggressive. And even if we were to be a unified species, but not under control of an alien group, they might think we're going to cause a ruckus. After all, we've got a lot of creativity. We've got a lot of ambition. We've got innovation and aggressiveness. And maybe our aggressiveness would be something that their aggressiveness wouldn't like or their need for control or stability. I hypothesize, I think they're very, very conservative, actually, in their mode of being. I think they probably have reached a plateau. And here we come, we're likely to cause some waves. So you could easily hypothesize that they would want to get their hooks into our system and control our global revolution in a way that would accord with their needs. It's just a theory, but I do think it has to be taken under consideration. So yeah, I do wonder. I go back and forth. There's a couple of scenarios that I bounce around. One is that there's a totally human elite that's worried about an alien presence and knows from their point of view that we have to have a revolution to consolidate power so we can deal with it, these beings. That's one possibility. That would be the most benign way to look at it. But another possibility is that they don't, they don't give a crap about people to begin with, and they want to initiate this revolution for their own benefit. And then there's a third that it is some level of infiltration or fifth column type work in which our transformation is being guided. One thing I can say very confidently is that this transformation, this fourth stage of humanity that I'm quite convinced is real, is very likely to make us much more like, in many ways, these aliens that we've been observing for so long. That is hive mind, lack of individuality, and also you know, much, much greater technological capabilities, obviously, not just weapons, but in, in every manner I can imagine, information control, artificial intelligence, and the like. So we're actually, I think, becoming very swiftly much more like the likely alien species that are observing us. Yeah, it's like pretty much across the board, all these different boxes you could check show that we're moving towards that alien archetype. Next, I think we're going to see TikTok videos of kids bleaching their skin green and trying to enlarge their eyes. Yeah, oh yeah. It's I really like pretty, pretty well. well. And look, I'm not here to, what people choose to do with their body, with their mind, with their life, that is their choice. Sure. I'm not here to say you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. What is obvious is that we've got a cultural ethos now that has very strongly promoted the idea. And this comes from top down. This is not just a bottom-up cultural phenomenon. This is very, very much centrally directed an ethos in which people are explicitly told, like your biology doesn't have any effect on what you can be. If you're born one gender, you can change it. Now, now in the meta, people will certainly be encouraged to take on any kind of avatar they want of any kind of species or any kind of creation, and I'm sure that'll be the case. So the idea of natural biological identity is being erased. We can see that. 
And then, you know, you could also argue, if you really want to go there, the whole idea of inclusivity, which has become very much part of the global ethos as well, could one day be used to say, hey, these aliens that have infiltrated our society and been here for a long time, well, they're they're people too. We have to include them and we have to accept them for what they are. Mm. Whatever their motives happen to be, maybe they're nice guys. That would be wonderful. But what if they're not? Right. What if they're interstellar economic hitmen, to borrow the phrase from John Perkins, you know, economic hitmen? What if they're interstellar economic hitmen? What would stop them from being like that? So there's a lot of things to consider, and I'm not going to pretend that I have every answer here. What is odd is that in the UFO research field, I don't really hear anyone raising any of these issues. Maybe I'm just living in a bubble and I don't hear it, but I'm not I'm not getting an idea that there's evidence of anyone just taking a few steps back and looking at the big picture and this transformation of the world and seeing it from a UFO ET perspective. So I think we need a little bit more of that. I, I don't want to be the only one talking in an echo chamber here. <laughs> yes, I agree with you. We do need more of it. And on the subject of human infiltration or alien infiltration of our structures, why wouldn't aliens covertly co-opt humanity and seed themselves in power centers? Our elite have done it for years. Freemasons and Skull and Bone members seem to strategize to get people from their network into positions of power. Yep. We see FDA directors becoming big pharma CEOs. So many presidents and royalty seem to be distant relatives or It's a a big club and we aren't in it, as George Carlin would say. That's right. That's right. You know, on the subject of the global totalitarian nightmare we're dealing with, I know there are some people in this audience that are so stressed about the state of the world that they might see us injecting aliens as kind of disrespectful to the seriousness of our situation. And I would just point out that you've been talking quite a bit about exactly who's pushing this global totalitarianism the Davos Group, the World Economic Forum folks, and maybe even some aspects of the Bilderberg meetings, which we know. But what I think the people listening might not know is that for the last 30 years, Klaus Schwab has headed something called the Forum of Young Global Leaders. Oh, yes. And the number of people in power who have gone through that program is pretty shocking, isn't it? Wow. I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah. So the World Economic Forum has been around for 50 years Klaus Schwab, by the way, a good buddy of Henry Kissinger. And about 30 years ago, I think it was 1992, right? Where he started the Young Global Leaders Program out of the WEF. And it's really good that you brought this up. So that Young Global Leaders Program has cultivated, like for example, the earliest members, the graduates of it were people like Tony Blair before he became Prime Minister of England, Angela Merkel before she became Chancellor of Germany, Nicolas Sarkozy, before he became president of France, you get the idea. I think Emmanuel Macron, if I'm not mistaken, is one. I could be wrong, but I think he is. The human robot, Pete Buttigieg, is one of the graduates of it right now, our Secretary of Transportation. And then, of course, I think I just listened to an interview with Schwab and David Gergen, who's a longstanding Bilderberg Davos guy. This might even be on YouTube or it might be on one of the alternate video platforms. But they were talking quite explicitly about how Justin Trudeau's cabinet right now has got more than half of his members are graduates of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders Program. Surprise, surprise. And I think they also said the same thing about the French cabinet under Macron, more than half of their graduates. So this is a global, and they're they're happy and proud of it. They're like, isn't this awesome? Yeah, from their point of view, it's amazing. They've got their hooks into all of the major national governments. 
What people have to understand is that every, I firmly believe this, every single cultural war that's being fought, whether it's currently the Canadian truckers or critical race theory or the border arguments, national borders and no national borders, all of these, they are all aspects of globalist versus anti-globalist ideology. That's all that it is. Everything comes down to that. So it's a Davos-directed or Davos-opposed platform. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, the globalist party's got a lot of power. I mean, they've got control over most of the national governments. They've got the media, uh, by and large, they've got most of the media. There's always a couple of exceptions. And they've got politicians and they've got the academia. So they're they're just pushing this through. Major media very clearly is on their side. So they're pushing this pedal to the metal. And COVID has just given them the best opportunity. You know, 9-11 was phase one of the global revolution. But COVID really is phase two, and it's really moving it forward in a much more dramatic fashion, much more swiftly. It's the perfect pretext for them because it's a virus that everyone was, you know, terrified of two years ago when it first hit the scene. No one, no one had information. How fatal is it? How transmissible is it? Like there was a lot of talk in those early weeks, of course, about this being basically a form of black death, which I think many people were convinced it was. And people can be forgiven for thinking this because there was just an absolute media onslaught from the right out of the gate to terrify people about this. And when you beat the public over the head with a fear stick again and again and again, I mean, people just become in high states of anxiety. And when you're in a high state of anxiety, you are very likely to run for cover and you will give up gladly. A lot of people gladly give up their rights for safety as they perceive it. And so it's been a very effective weapon. But really what we're seeing, and you know, if anyone doubts that this is globally directed, I would just hearken to two phrases. One is the Great Reset and the other is Build Back Better. Both of them are Davos phrases, both of them. The Great Reset, of course, is the title of Klaus Schwab's book that he co-authored. And you saw national leaders. I just listened to a clip this morning from 2020 of Justin Trudeau talking, this is an opportunity for a Great Reset. <laughs> Gee, where did he get that from? You heard it here in the US, of course, as well. And same with Build Back Better. These are Davos phrases. These are Davos-initiated programs where national leaders in many countries are using these talking points in unison to promote an agenda to transform human society. This is not just COVID prevention schemes. This is a complete remaking of human society. And in fact, all you have to do is listen to their statements and they're quite upfront about that. This is to remake human society, reimagine, as they like to say, you know, human society. That would be great if that was genuinely organically coming from people. That's one thing, but this is obviously technocratically directed from the top. And it's for the purposes of essentially, I mean, working with global upper level financial capitalism. Let's not leave them out of this. Mm -hmm. What they have wanted to do for the last century or more essentially is commodify every single action that you make in your life. Every single relationship that you have becomes commodified so that they can bill it. They can put a price on it and charge you for it. So organic friendships go away instead of virtual friendships on one of the platforms, which then can be used for advertisers to get the hooks into you that way. You know, just as one example, but the more virtual we are, the more commodifiable we become. And from authentic relationships then become transactional relationships. 
And from a upper level financial capitalist point of view, that's perfect. That's what they want. And they don't want national borders because that gets in the way. They don't want traditional human values either to get in the way because that's a problem. So that means allegiance to family, allegiance to nation, allegiance to God. <laughs> All of those are problems for them. And this is why upper level financial capitalism has allied itself with what we might call progressivist ideology. It's a really weird thing, but it's not that difficult to see when you look around. You can see how the two of them have really worked hand in glove. They both want the same thing for different reasons. So progressivist ideology would say, well, you know, our job is to help free the individual from the shackles of the past, <laughs> from the shackles of superstition, so that the individual can fully attain his or her best identity and their best outcome. So don't allow yourself to be guided by culture and tradition that's kept us down in the past. There's power to that ideology, by the way. I mean, we had the, you know, from the Enlightenment onward, the idea of freedom is, is yes, indeed. You want to free the individual from arbitrary structures of power that do inhibit our growth. I think we probably all would agree with that. But when you really look at it in the long term, what this ideology has done is it's been a solvent to some of the really longstanding structures of culture and structures of thought that human beings have had that I think are dissolving them is a very dangerous thing. And when people don't have anything else to believe in, when you, as Nietzsche said, we have killed God, how will we wash the blood from our hands? Like, what's going to replace God? Well, I think what we're seeing is the state is going to replace it and consumer culture is going to replace it. The problem is that consumer culture is dominated by people with a lot of money, a lot of marketing power, a lot of propaganda ability just to get inside your head and really completely just manipulate you and, and divorce you from your inner humanity. Yes, man, excellent points across the board. And I think it was from you initially that I learned about those young global leaders. I think names that you didn't mention that I believe are also associated are Jeff Bezos and mm -hmm. Gavin Newsom, my little dictator here in California. Correct, correct. And, uh, Bill Gates. Yeah, and even Tulsi Gabbard, which kind of breaks my heart, but of course they're going to have controlled opposition at all levels of the game. And of course, a person can graduate from something and then not want to fulfill its mission. I mean, that's, that's me being quite I think hopeful, that is true. But... <laughs> you got to keep in mind, like, hell, you know, 35 years ago, I wanted to be a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was 22 years old. I'd made, I was in the game. I was in the running and I didn't get it, but I wanted it. I thought I wanted it anyway. Sometimes things happen and you, you break away. Yes. And with all these billions of people on the planet, I'd rather be safer than sorry and not support anyone who's in this little uh, club of global leaders. But, you know, that one was one that I didn't like here and it hurt. But you're right. There's so many different things like uh, fear does incredible things. We started this whole saga with seeing photos from Wuhan of people dead in the streets. That doesn't really match anything we've seen over the last two years. No. In fact, it seems kind of hard for me to find people who have died without any kind of hospital intervention at all, which, you know, we won't go down that road. But oh, even right. people like Allison McDowell have talked about the behavior outcomes kind of gamifying and commodifying everything. Like you mentioned, it seems like some of these guys want to take that to Wall Street. And once the monitoring infrastructure is in place, they're going to be betting on our lifestyles and our, uh, you know, fast tracks to success as they would the stock market or the housing market in the past. And 
It's just uh, we're getting to a really wild place. But I wanted to just save a little bit of time to talk about this here. But you did a great talk with your wife, Tracy, recently, who is Canadian, about this freedom convoy. Oh, yeah. Probably the biggest resistance movement we have. It's a beautiful thing. I worry that they might end up being the fall guys for supply shortages. But it's been eye-opening to see how Trudeau has tried to steer the narrative that they're racist, Nazi, terrorists, and that part of it has failed pretty miserably. But the scary thing is this Emergency Act invokement and the move to freeze the bank accounts of anyone involved. They even have donor lists. They even mention crypto. As a historian, what are your thoughts on these events and that it might be the kind of government action that gets quite normalized going forward? Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you brought this up. By the way, that talk I did with Tracy, that was a members-only podcast for my website, Richard Olin Members. So that's really cool that you were on top of that. <laughs> yeah, we just did that a few weeks ago, early on, actually, in the truckers thing. And, and one thing I said to her, I offered my own prediction. And this is before, this is only after Trudeau had called them a fringe group with unacceptable <laughs> ideas, I think. And I said, the truckers convoy is going to be the Gettysburg of the COVID crisis overall. And by that, I simply meant like in American history, the Battle of Gettysburg was the, the major fulcrum, the turning point of the American Civil War. The North won that battle, of course, the South lost it. And as a result of the winner of that battle really gained the upper hand for the remainder of the war. And I said, whoever wins this battle, this trucker convoy, this is going to be a critical. I mean, if the truckers win, that doesn't mean that they won the war. They, this is going to be a long, long haul. And this is not going to be an easy one to win for the people, to be honest. But if they lose, it's game over because... You know, Trudeau, I mean, he's clearly he's not acting on his own. He's totally a puppet. He's a Davos puppet. And what I suggested is that they cannot allow the truckers to win. I said this a couple of weeks ago. Truckers cannot be allowed to win because if they are allowed to win, that's sending a signal to resistance groups around the world that resistance can work. And this is a revolution that, from their point of view, must go through. They've got a complete digital control over the population. They, and they clearly believe this because they're moving so swiftly toward that goal. So I just said, you can expect psyops, false flags, or any kind of underhanded tactics that the government's going to use against these people. And now, I mean, we've just been seeing it for the last couple of weeks. And they are indeed cracking down. I think arrests are being made as we speak in Ottawa. I think I saw that headline. I didn't get into the details. But yeah, they're cracking down on financial transactions, cryptos. So this is a level of draconian control over the public that, I mean, look, let's face it, whatever side of this you're on had to be unimaginable by anyone just a year or two ago. Who could have thought that we would get to this point? But here we are. And I think it is becoming normalized. There's a tremendous amount of resistance worldwide and within Canada, that is true. But the last poll that I'm aware of, I think it was something like 54 to 46% favored or opposed to what the truckers are doing. I think it was something like that. So a little bit more than half Canadians still, less than a week ago, I believe, support breaking up the convoy. Mm. And so, I mean, I just think, wow, that's amazing to me. It's incredible how you know, what was once a standard liberal talking point, which is that working class rights matter and that freedom of speech matters, has just gone by the boards. 
for what we would call the progressivist movement. There are some dissenters. I mean, Ilan Omar of the United States actually criticized the movement to dox the people who gave to GoFundMe. They've been doxed. I mean, this has been horrible. Mm-hmm. And even she opposed that. That was kind of good of her to do that. But by and large, what you've seen is this very, very centralized controlled narrative, all coming from corporate mainstream sources. Shockingly, other than Fox, what the hell's going on? I've been living in the upside down world here. You know, 20 years ago, I could never have imagined this, but here we are. But by and large, what you're seeing is a mainstream narrative that is uniformly in the Davos camp here. And they are coming down hard against these people and smearing them in the most shameless way. So I don't know where this is going to end. There's still a really good chance, even though the arrests are being made, this could go really badly for Trudeau's government. This could be very bad optics for him. I can't see how this is going to look good. It wouldn't shock me to see the Canadian government to lose confidence at this point. I don't know the intricacies of Canadian politics to know how that will happen, but I don't know. I can see it as possible. What I predict, I'm going to go on the line here and make a prediction. I think you're going to see a temporary loosening of these restrictions for about six months or so. So I think starting probably around now or maybe in the springtime, we're going to see, oh, the people have had some victories. We've got some rollbacks of the mandates and so on. And I think that'll probably hold for the spring and summer of this year. And I believe something dramatic is going to happen. Something contrived is going to happen by late summer, early fall. And we're going to see another justification for not just draconian measures, but for the propagandizing of the Davos globalist agenda. Because this is not a war that can be won quickly. This is going to take a long, long time. And the odds are stacked against us. I just have to say it. I think the odds are stacked against the people in this. People are awake. Many people are awake now and they're, they see the dangers around them and they are resisting it. But there's a lot more than guns and tanks involved here. There's digital control over people's lives. And it's very difficult, very difficult to fight that, especially in the long run. And especially now you've got, you know, my generation one day will be gone. And there's new people coming in all the time, totally entrained by the system more and more. So it might take a generation, but this is going to be a tough one to win. So people have to find a way. And I haven't figured this out. I don't know if I've got any answer here. But we definitely need to find a way absolutely to preserve not just our freedom, but our very humanity in the face of what is happening all around us. And that's going to be a tall order. Not impossible, but it's going to be a tough one to do. Very much so. Very much so. But Excellently said. I mean, I agree with all of uh, your points there. And this is clearly a sloppy segue, but I wanted to also get into this new documentary, The Observers, while we're still in this first hour. And one of its subjects that you talk about in there is there being a genetic component to the alien agenda. And there's a woman named Deborah Jordan Cable. Is that her name? Cobble. Cobble. Deb Cobble. And I know you also interviewed her on The Richard Dolan Show. But she, Wonderful person. Yeah, she tells her story of an encounter many years ago while she was pregnant. And after the encounter, she felt like something was wrong. She went to the doctor and the doctor said she was no longer pregnant. And he said something to the effect of, 
We see this on occasion. Best just to forget about it. You're young. You'll have other children. Yeah. And that is a curious thing to say. Sounds like there's some larger operation going on and you can't ask any questions about it. I've also heard you talk recently about supermodel looking humanoids with very strong telepathic abilities. Maybe that's connected. Maybe it's not. But what are your thoughts on her story and the wider implications of that if it's true? Yeah, Tracy and I just came across yet another of those supermodel telepathic stories. Maybe I can allude to that later. Yeah. In the case of Deb, she was the subject of one of Bud Hopkins' most famous books. It's called Intruders. In that book, her pseudonym was Kathy Jordan. But Deb, yeah, she's one of many, many individuals that this has happened to. And this is actually a good point for a segue into the ET phenomenon because I don't think many people are fully aware. I mean, folks in the UFO field may, but is the the sheer level of interaction that these beings are having with our world and our species. Like the scale is far beyond, I think most people realize. I'm not just talking about abductions. That's part of it. What you find with abductions is that most people don't have the opportunity to go through extensive regressions with hypnotherapists like Deb did with Bud Hopkins, like other people have with Barbara Lamb or Kathleen Martin or Yvonne Smith or David Jacobs or the late John Mack. Like most people don't have those opportunities. And so what you find is lots of folks out there who have vague memories of an abduction experience and they've got a lot of missing pieces to it. There's a lot that they don't have and they likely will never get them filled in. And that's in large part because these other beings have an incredible ability of what we can call cognitive manipulation or memory management. They are outstanding at this. So this is going on at a very wide scale and there is a genetic component of it. I think there's definitely a hybridization component to it. There's also very possibly a component in which it's a part of just preserving human genetics. I just recently did a redive into the classic story of Betty Andreas and Luca, who's written a number of books by Ray Fowler. And that's really what you get out of her story is that they were convinced that humanity is going to go through some kind of extinction level event and they are preserving our genetics. Okay, so there's something there going on. But the other aspect in which there's just this massive interaction that they have is I'm working on the next volume of UFOs in a national security state and I'm going through tons and tons and tons of UFO reports from the 21st century. And it's really an extraordinary experience for me because A, there's just so many of them. There's so many well-described ones, detailed. But the nature of many of these, I think, is something that we're not, we don't really talk about enough, which is that we're talking two, three in the morning type sightings of ultra, ultra stealthy, clandestine, low flying, silent craft over people's neighborhoods every night, somewhere. Someone will say, yeah, I couldn't sleep. I went out and had a cigarette or I, my dog had to go outside in the middle of the night or whatever. And it was 2.30 in the morning and I, I almost missed it, but it was right there. It was this perfect, sometimes a black triangular craft, sometimes a circular craft, 300 feet above or treetop level over people's homes, making not a sound and then just gliding off sometimes quickly, sometimes shining intense beams of light down briefly. Why? 
what's going on. And it is so widespread. And you have to ask yourself, who the hell's behind this? Is this a human black budget project? If so, what are they doing over your home, over my home? Or is it an ET thing where they're doing abductions? Or are they doing scanning of human beings in one form or another? I think that's actually possibly part of the answer, that last thing. But I guess my point here is that there is a absolutely massive infrastructure behind just those types of sightings that are seen not just in the United States and Canada, they are seen everywhere. They don't get reported as much from other countries because it's just not as, it doesn't seem to be the reporting mechanisms or the culture to report these. It's changing a little bit now, but it does seem to be globally, this phenomenon. So there's something very, very big here. And, and my view of it is that anytime you're looking at something that's this big, there has inevitably got to be overlap between that phenomenon and some of the major global phenomena that we're seeing now, including the global revolution that's taking place. So, you know, I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question perfectly, but I think it is imperative that our society and our species indeed shines a light on them, shines a light on these other beings. First of all, to see what's happening, to recognize what's happening. And I'm hoping my next book will shine some light on that. And then to inquire about what the agendas are. I mean, you know, we've got a public conversation going on about UFO or UAP, as people like to say now. And that's fine. It's good that we're having it. I mean, look at before 2017, none of us expected that. But frankly, the level of conversation we're having on this is still really at the kindergarten level in so many ways. It's like we don't even have a genuine disclosure or an acknowledgement that these things are not from us. There's still this question are they Russian drones, Chinese drones, whatever? I think is kind of a ridiculous, almost insulting level of discourse on it. But there's so much more that we need to be asking about this phenomenon that is just not being asked. I mean, abductions, no one's even talking about this anymore, practically. I mean, I'm glad that the documentary that I just did, The Observers, is does deal with that. I think that was a very well done attempt. And just to talk about that film very briefly, one thing I liked about that film is that the producers came at it from looking at it from three, I think I'm getting my films not mixed up here, from three different perspectives. You know, aliens as the good guys, aliens as the dark, like the David Jacobs scenario. And then there was some like traditional, like a Christian perspective that was brought into it. Yeah. Unless I'm getting my films mixed up. I think that's where. No, that's right. <laughs> okay, good. That's right. And I thought that was actually a good way to, to handle it. I think it's a topic that deserves multiple perspectives for us to examine it. But we really need to be doing this much, much more broadly in our culture. And sadly, I just don't see that discussion happening very much. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And I like that The Observers does cover all that ground. Last time we talked, I definitely dragged you into some of that conversation about the re religiosity of some of these experiences and yeah. could they be spirits or angels and this kind of thing. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, the observers, it goes there. And I've also heard you say regarding the um, abductions and the low-level flyovers, it's 
easy to forget that this happens every single day when there's no reporting on it at all. Exactly. People who look at it, like you and I, we might even take it for granted. Like we heard about it in the 90s and the early 2000s. We don't hear about it anymore. It must not be happening. But that's not true. It still continues every day. We're just getting stonewalled on it. And there's another thing in The Observers I liked where you talk about the breakaway civilization hypothesis and ask, is it possible that you could have a level of secrecy that would cause a certain segment of our civilization to break away? They'd have science that would be off limits and would have an understanding of the world and of us in the universe that the rest of us poor slobs wouldn't have. And maybe even interactions with other beings. And I totally agree with all that. That's really well said. I'm curious how deeply... You've looked into the alternative energy conference circuit because I'm sure you know, just as we have UFO conferences, there are these secret science, zero point energy, Tesla tech type conferences where inventors present some pretty amazing stuff. And their stories often do involve being co-opted by shady business partners, patents being taken away, and in some cases, mysterious deaths. And the thing that overlaps with ufology to me is there seems to be a presence of a international cabal that supersedes government that keeps this stuff quiet and visits people at their home and intimidates them to stay quiet. And not only do UFO alien abductee experiencers have these visitations, but it seems that so do people who have stumbled on some interesting esoteric technology in their garage lab and then are told, hey, we're taking this and you can't talk about it. Maybe it's the same group. Yes, yes, yes. So to answer your first part of that question, I am interested in a lot of the breakthrough energy concepts. I'm not expert. I did attend one or two of those events in the past. It's been a little while. I'm very interested in it. It's one of those subjects where I will periodically jump back into it and ask myself, okay, what's been going on since the last time I looked at it? So I try to keep up on it in that way. And yes, I think your observation is exactly right. There are a lot of very smart, very brilliant people around this world who are working on their own version of free energy. And there's different types of solutions. You mentioned zero point and there's magnetic types of designs. And I suspect that a lot of them work pretty well. And I, I don't think they're all crazy. I don't think they're all crackpot ideas. There are examples of people being pressured, people disappearing, dying mysteriously, and so on. Yes. And to someone who might doubt that there's an international cabal, I would just point out, you know, for decades and decades and decades, people denied that there was something called the mafia. Mm. You know, J. Edgar Hoover back in the 50s, when he was under control of the mafia, he was obviously bought off by them would say things like, oh, that's just nonsense. You've got a lot of small, low-level criminal groups. There's no central organized crime. What are you talking about? And of course, you had something in the 50s called the Kafaver Committee, which totally outed the mafia. It was to Hoover's embarrassment and all of that. Yes, of course, there was a mafia. Like, we, <laughs> of course, we know there. But when you look at our world today, we have to understand that structures of power are both formal and informal. That is, they are above board, out in the open, legal, and they are non-legal, but beyond legal. When, when you have groups of individuals that have just ungodly amounts of money and influence, financial primarily, to control entire national governments, does anyone honestly think that they want publicity? That they want 
the public to get into their business on, and all their financial transactions, which are all illegal and criminal. I mean, these people are, anytime we get an opportunity to look into what they're like, they're all psychopathic, sociopathic people. They're all about power. Laws don't apply to them. And so, yes, of course, behind the scenes, they're going to do everything possible to manipulate things for their benefit. My goodness, even in the bylaws of the Bilderberg organization, which itself was considered conspiracy theory for years, their own bylaws are for them to promote their own financial interests. The members of the group, like they're all about making money. And they do that by destroying national sovereignty to the extent possible to facilitate the international flow of their own money and their own opportunity. So of course they're going to do that. So the real question, and I don't have the answer here, but the question is, who's actually running the show? Like, I think it's clear you can say the operational managers are people like World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and his folks who overlap completely with the Bilderberg Group and who overlap the American Council on Foreign Relations, who overlap with the infamous Trilateral Commission and who overlap with the Bohemian Grove and, and on and on and on. It's all the same people. They basically all talk to each other. And who the hell knows now? They probably have their own private Zoom meetings or better than Zoom, whatever their version is. So they don't need to have formal legislation and laws. What they do is they make decisions to send their people into the locuses of national power and they implement those laws around the world and they, they're in a coordinated fashion. So they control global finance. They clearly control the politics of most nations. and. I have to assume, and I think there's strong evidence that some of them are in with the ET reality. And it may be even be more than in with. I, I don't know to the extent that they are invested in that. But there is no way in hell that these individuals who are there, it is their business to control the globe, that they're not going to know everything they need to know about the ET presence here on Earth. And in terms of, of human-looking aliens, by the way, yes, I've collected a number of these stories over the years. I don't have a huge amount, but I've got enough. And Tracy and I just got another one this week, and it's a good one. It's a very good one. Yeah, uh, let us know about details that. Are, well, I want to be careful about it because we're still unpacking it. But it's uh, it's a gentleman who had ongoing interactions with two very good-looking, telepathic, male-female pair, you know, just like they always are, beings who looked human, but were way, 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 way beyond, way beyond human in their capabilities. And let me leave it at that because we're not done with that one. <laughs> Sorry to be a tease, but just let me have that one. Sure. But what I would say is that there are more than enough anecdotal accounts that I personally, just me, that I have gotten, aside from other researchers who've also gotten them, of human-looking beings that just don't seem to come from around these parts. So that's infiltration. Now, to what extent have they gotten themselves into a human power structure? Look, this is all speculation. I don't know. Right. But, but again, I would have to say they're highly intelligent. They would certainly have the capability to influence I mean, if they can influence ordinary people, they could probably get their hooks into a higher level. You know, there's a famous story. In fact, I write about it in The Alien Agendas, dealing with Sir Peter Horsley, who was a close friend and confidant of the late Prince Philip, who just died recently. And Peter Horsley was uh, like a super capable guy. 
think he was a British aviator, a fighter pilot, highly decorated, and just like one of these go-to guys that you would just entrust with anything. And he was a confidant of Prince Philip back in the 1950s. And as many people probably know, Prince Philip was an avid follower of the UFO phenomenon. He was deeply invested in that subject. And according to what Horsley himself wrote in his memoirs, called Scenes from Another Room, I think, he talks about his meeting with a Mr. Janus in, I think it was 1953 or 54, on behalf of the prince. And Horsley said, you know, I met with this guy in this London apartment and he kind of blew my mind. He said, I'm convinced he was able to read my mind. And he's talking about the extraterrestrial presence in such a way that I thought, how can he possibly know these things? And again, Horsley was a guy who you couldn't pull the wool over this man. He was absolutely top level human being, you know? He's one of these people like, when there's a crisis, you want him. <laughs> you want a guy like Horsley. That's why he was so close to Philip. But Horsley came out of this meeting convinced that this man was an alien. And so these stories exist. There's a lot of them. And my attitude is, look, there's enough of them out there, and I'm going to respect the judgment of people like Horsley and people that I have personally spoken to, one of whom was a retired Air Force colonel with a PhD. I spoke with him and his wife about one of their encounters with these male-female, super-blonde, Nordic, supermodel aliens that were telepathic. This man was an extremely high-level individual. I spoke with another woman who I don't know her background as well. I met with her and her husband and she described her meeting in a church in 1965 in Western Pennsylvania with one of these, two of these types. She certainly was credible. So I think, yes, there's a group that's here. They are infiltrated. Linda Moulton Howe, the lion of ufology, she's an amazing lady. She's talked about a number of her own personal encounters with these types of people. She told me, I'll never forget some of these stories. And I, I'm sure, I mean, Linda, She's let a lot of these things out in recent years that, that I think she kind of kept to herself for a while. And there's other researchers as well. Some of them are not alive anymore who've told stories similar. The late Elaine Douglas, who was a MUFON state director of Utah, had a couple of these stories. So I, I think, look, I'm just going to go with what seems to be evidence coming from some dedicated people who've got these accounts. And I think that there is a, an infiltration of some sort. Now, how far it's gone, I can only speculate. <laughs> right, right. I think I've heard you talk about Elaine Douglas before, and her claim was that she was aware of alien infiltration of the CIA. Yeah, well, you, <laughs> you paid attention. That's right. Yeah, that's something Elaine told me personally many years ago, maybe a decade ago. And I really honestly wish that I had followed up and gotten more detail from her about that. I didn't. And she's passed away and her papers are, they're not in my possession. I don't know where they are. I uh, would love to be able to go through those. Right. I'll tell you one thing about Elaine Douglas. She was absolutely top-notch thinker. Very, very intelligent. When we first met, she gave me grief over a few things that I had written, but we, we became, we really ended up on very good terms over the years and had a lot of respect for her. Mm -hmm. And let me end with this question to try to tie a bow around all these crazy subjects. But 
something I've talked to my buddy Gordon White about pretty regularly. I know someone oh, you're familiar okay. with. Absolutely. Something we've talked about. There's another smart guy. Yes, yes. Too smart for me. I don't know why he considers me a friend, but uh, we are both pretty disappointed in how our communities, the communities we generally hang out in, call mine stoner conspiracy counterculture, I guess. Gordon, of course, is a thought leader in the magic community. Yeah. We've both been disappointed in how our communities have responded pretty poorly over the last two years when there are several reasons to think that we should have been well-trained to not just go with the flow, give in to fear, and acquiesce to everything that we have acquiesced to. Well, let me ask you about the ufology community, a set of researchers who should be familiar with deception, with media blackouts of the truth, with top-down cover-ups, covert ops, psyops, yeah. a cabal above government suppressing certain information, coordination of government and corporate power. Ufology researchers should be people who usually read between the lines and press for better answers and don't take government at face value, in my opinion. Right. It's similar logic for these adjacent communities to see through this push for a global monothink biosurveillance state, but they just drop the ball. Well, what are your thoughts on the general ufology community in the wake of this global revolution, as you call it? Yeah, uh, it's depressing. It's true. Now, I haven't done a survey of a lot of the researchers on this. I do know that there are some leading researchers who seem to be very on board with a lot of the measures that are happening, ostensibly for COVID mitigation. And they are absolutely. I'm just going to tell you and your listeners right now, I am not vaccinated. Me either. And uh, well, there you go. So and it's just it's my choice. And I don't mind saying this publicly. And look, I'm not saying like, you should never get vaccinated ever. Like, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to say that. But this is my choice and it's my decision. And in part because, yes, I, I have a very strong distrust of big pharma. So sue me. I mean, this was something that people used to have a distrust of not long ago, I thought. And suddenly Pfizer is the savior that every like sponsoring all the TV <laughs> programs on mainstream. Right. Your larger point, like where is the ufology community with all of this? I know that there are some UFO researchers who are very good friends of mine, and they are awake to what's going on. I don't know how vocal they are about it. I mean, how many really vocal UFO people are there these days? I, I don't really know. I haven't, look, compared with more than two years ago, I'm not, I don't travel nearly the way I used to. So there's no conferences. I don't really get to have quiet chat time off the record with a lot of these individuals anymore. So it's hard for me to get a really good sense the way I might have been able to more than two years ago, what they're thinking. But I do think you, you're onto something. And I do think there's a lot of UFO community that's not getting it. And I'll just say this. The UFO community, there is a political element to some of the UFO researchers, but I am going to say most of them that I listen to, they don't have a whole lot to say that's insightful when it comes to genuine political analysis of the UFO phenomenon. I just, I have to say this. There's a lot of very, very conventional, very mainstream dominated conventional thinking on this when you talk to certain people, especially when it comes to things like disclosure. I just think, you know, some of these folks, they act as though 
Congress is actually a functioning body. Like, yeah, just get it to Congress and have them like, I'm like, what? What are you smoking? Like, can I have some of that so I can believe what you believe? Like, I would love your optimism. I don't get it. So there's a serious lack of deep political, geopolitical, deep political analysis in the UFO community. Not always. I, I find that it goes deeper with a lot of the people who would attend the conferences, frankly. But a lot of the leading researchers, I'm not going to get into names. But yeah, I mean, I just think, oh my God, there's a long, long road that a lot of these individuals need. And some of them will put themselves out as like the great thought leaders. And when I listen to them talk about politics, I could just see from my perspective, they're at grade school level here. Mm-hmm. And I look, am I some expert? Like, do I know it all? No. I've made lots of mistakes. I make lots of mistakes. But the thing is, I was fixated on this stuff long before I got into UFOs. And I have been in a good position to study and to know a little bit what I'm talking about. Like I got lucky. I was able to, I studied, for example, the history of political theory under world-renowned experts as a young person. And I studied what's called intellectual history of Western civilization. I know it very, very, very well. And then I went from there into really the development of power politics in the modern era. So all of this just, it's a natural thing for me. And then even before I got into the UFO thing, I studied the history of espionage and intelligence communities. So I had a really good jumping off point when I entered the UFO field. So so yeah, I think I'm I'm entitled to say some of the things that I've said when I hear the blindness that that comes out. And I'm going to say also on the other side of it, there are people who are, I'll call like the knee-jerk conspiratorialists who see a conspiracy under every single rock. Guilty. Which I, I also think is sometimes equally destructive. Sure. When you're talking about power, power I know we've, we've gone over two hours and I don't know when you don't want to wrap this up, but the thing that I want to remind some of those folks is like, there is a deep state, absolutely. There are deep, deep, deep shenanigans that are going on, but not every single person is necessarily controlled opposition. You mentioned Tulsi Gabbard earlier in this conversation. Look, I'm not a Tulsi Gabbard expert, but I have listened a lot to Tulsi Gabbard over the last several years. And I know that it takes absolute guts for her to say the things that she said. Yes. And she has put herself on the line more than once. I don't believe she's controlled opposition. She may have opinions that I disagree with that I would consider hopelessly corporate or mainstream or or whatever. But that doesn't mean that I think that she's actively working for the other side as controlled opposition. I don't believe that. I don't believe that everyone who's ever been with the CIA is controlled opposition. Hell, Victor Marchetti 50 years ago wrote a book exposing CIA illegalities back in the 1970s. Was he controlled opposition? Hell no, he wasn't. Or Philip Agee or any of the more recent people, Bill Binney, William Binney, formerly of the NSA, who's exposed a lot of NSA crimes. Is he controlled opposition? Is Edward Snowden controlled opposition? These people all worked within the system at one point or another. But the point is that there are always factions, even from within that system, whether it's 2000 years ago with Caesar versus Pompey and Crassus to today. There's always factions within the upper, upper echelon of their elite. And that doesn't mean that they're all wonderful and 
sanctified and holier than thou. No, they, you know, everyone's got dark shit inside their soul. I mean, my God, no one's an exception to that. But it does mean that there are genuinely divergent opinions, even within the establishment. Even within the establishment media, I, I find that there are some divergent views, and I don't think that I would call them controlled opposition. So, so I think there's the one hand, you know, there's this very conventional attitude that you do find with a lot of UFO research. Yeah, that's a problem. Whereas I understand the motivation for seeing it exactly the opposite, like everything's a conspiracy. I do think that can lead you down a, a difficult and unmanageable path as well, and also an untrue path. So the thing is, we want to be evidence-based with everything as best we can. It's an imperfect world. Recognize that there are dark shenanigans that are afoot and do our best to separate the wheat from the chaff. And that's it. At the end of the day, all you can do is your best. Yes. Well, cheers to that. I totally agree. It's why you're one of the best and skepticism can become paranoia very easily. We know controlled opposition exists, but it's a tangled right. web and we can't draw clear lines around these things or these people. And I appreciate your comments about ufology. You know, my sphere would be better defined as probably a host of shows like this. And when I see hosts of a show like this lining up for the third shot and saying we need to censor disinformation, I just wonder if they've paid attention to their own guests or if they were ever really on the same page. Starting to feel like a man without a country over here. But, yeah. you know, it has been a pleasure to talk to you again. Let's call it a wrap. Seriously, awesome stuff we got into today. Very heavy, important stuff mixed with a little fun. I urge everyone to check out The Observers, Secret Space Program, UFO, Rise of the TR-3B, which we didn't even talk about. We didn't, and, but that's a great movie. I thought, I thought it was well done. Yes. And of course, your latest book, The Alien Agendas, A Speculative Analysis of Those Visiting Earth. What else should we tell people in terms of following up on the Richard Dolan experience? Well, oh, thanks for asking. Most of my work is on, at my website, richarddolanmembers.com. It's an active site. I mean, I post things multiple times every week, whether it's articles or video or audio podcasts. I do very frequently. And I'll just say within the confines of a closed site, I'm a lot more liberated to say the things I want to say. I do have free content there. Anyone can just go check out. There's a lot of free stuff there. But I have a lot of members content. But it's not just me. The, the great thing about that site, which I love, is there is an active community there, both in comments below posts. Oh, my God, I look at them every day. And there's a forum there. It's all closed and moderated and <laughs> I could say a safe space, but in, in a good sense. It's like, you know, it's for people who are actively involved and they just share their ideas. So there's a lot going on there. And I'm very proud of the folks who are members of that site. I'm very lucky to have them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great site. I love it. And your work ethic puts mine to shame. But people who rely on membership sites and the income from those certainly need to pay attention to what's going on in the world and are probably lucky to have that closed system at the end of the day. But yes, great stuff. Thank you kindly for talking to me again. I know you will, but keep fighting the good fight, sir. Thank you, Greg. And we're going to have to redo this conversation soon enough after the revolution has either proceeded or been halted. So we'll have to discuss it again. <laughs> yes. Well, I look forward to it or I'm afraid of it, but we'll see. <laughs> One last thing. Yes. I'll just say, you know, with all, because there's a lot of dark stuff. People have accused me of being blackpilled and Maybe they're right. I don't know. But one, one thing that I, we we're talking about the Christian ufologists, but one good thing that we can take in our world from that ethos is the act of forgiveness. 
We're in a world where there's this new religion afoot where basically people are condemned for <laughs> getting out of line and there's no redemption. One of the great things is to remember that we can forgive others. And it's a good way to move forward, to mend a lot of the pain that has obviously been happening in our world over the last couple of years. People have been polarized so viciously and violently and to a point where you know, there's genuine hatred on both sides of this divide. And I don't like feeling it. I don't like feeling anger. So this is something we should work at, is forgiveness. Well said. Diversity is supposed to be the spice of life. And it's not just skin tone. It's diversity of ideas as well. And sure. that's the part that seems to get left out. But I appreciate you saying that. All right. Awesome. Well, enjoy the day. Thank you again. Take care. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Greg. Serenity now, higher side chatters. Richard Dolan for the win. One of my favorite people and really one of my favorite interviews in a long time because he's able to weave in and out of the alien subject and the very real global biotechno surveillance state like very few people can or will. I know not even everyone in this audience agrees with the perspective I've been highlighting through the bright minds for troubled times we've talked to over the last two years, but it's gotten a bit harder. I mean, even on unrelated subjects, there are authors that I really like who have tweeted things like, get your shots, wear your mask, and shut up. And I won't name names, but it's really sad to see when I think, man, so you've written about this certain period in history full of corruption or this cover-up that happened in the 80s, or any list of things you could mention. But now, you think we should all just go along to get along? It's weird. A lot of us have no problem seeing the tyranny in history, but the closer we are to it in the present, we seem to miss it. I don't know, but it just makes Richard stand out that much more as one of the greats. Certain people are open and even excited to get a bit outside of their lane, and others just want to make the same usual points and move on to the next interview. But he's a good sport. I know there are tons of podcasts that want some of his time, and ours has such a goofy name compared to how serious I do take providing a good interview. But what can I say? I was like 25 when I started this, and a part of me likes the don't judge a book by its cover aspect. You have to get past the THC thing to get into the meat of what we're doing. But it does turn off some of the more serious guests. It has been a problem trying to court certain uh, people in this field, especially when there are a hundred times the podcasts out there now than there was back then. But anyway, crazy that we recorded this just a week ago, and I'm glad that we got to talk about the trucker convoy. It is an important topic but it's pretty much in shambles already. Obviously, this was before the horse stomping incident, which is hard to watch. And Richard even said, I think they're making arrests as we speak, but I kind of expected it to take longer. I don't count them out, and I hear there's an American convoy going to D.C. very soon, and it would be great if we saw more overall resistance, but I'm less hopeful all the time. Now it's on to the next crisis with the Ukraine-Russia situation. Either way, I do wonder what's really driving this whole thing that we talked about looming on our doorstep. 
Is it truly just a couple of power-hungry maniacs, or is there something weirder driving humanity's direction? I hit this point all the time, but these people are in their 80s and 90s with all the money in the world. Is this really what they want to do? Is this fun for them? It almost seems like they can't do anything but this. Even near the top, it seems like they're being pushed by something. Because at the end of the day, doesn't it seem like they're just clocking in for another 9 to 5? But who or what could be their boss? I don't really think Greys are us from the future, as much as that's out there. But it's like, if that were true, we know the past, we know the present, we have this gap, and then we have us being the Greys and coming back through the timeline to try and get enough genetic material to repair ourselves. Is it that hard to fill in the gap with the rest of the story? that would complete the timeline? I don't think so. In a lot of ways, we are seeing it now. Wouldn't it be interesting if people who've participated in this series of mRNA shots, who traditionally have had routine abductions in their family history, stopped having them? Or if in 10 years we can find some sort of overlap between people who opted out of this and those who get visited and have their DNA taken on a ship in the night? Look, I don't know why these beings do what they do, but to think this massive mRNA vaccination campaign could be even a small factor in how the aliens' genetic agenda pivots? I don't think that's too out there to ponder. I mean, isn't it hard to say that all the talk of secret meetings between aliens and government or deep underground bases run by the aliens or every story we've heard all just amount to isolated incidents with no real impact on the human story or the direction of our general global culture. But before going too far off topic from the trucker thing and the World Economic Forum, I wanted to play this clip where someone actually raised these questions about the Canadian government, and they had the most chicken shit response ever, but at least it was asked. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I listened to my colleague's speech I had a constituent that wanted me to ask a question about outside interference to our democracy. Klaus Schwab is the head of the World Economic Forum, and he bragged how his subversive WWF World Economic Forum has, quoted, infiltrated governments around the world. He said that his organization had penetrated more than half of Canada's cabinet. And I was wondering, in the interest of transparency, could the member please name which cabinet ministers are on board with the WEF's agenda? My concern is the deputy. Uh, order, order, order. I, I know it was. I know the, uh, the member was in a, a really good, good question there, but the the, the audio is really, really bad, and the video is really, really bad as well. Um, and I and I and I apologize. I don't know if if the member. Okay. I mean that is awesome. These are things any person can do to have a real viral impact in making others more aware. They have to be asked these questions on camera to then provide such eye-opening answers, right? I liked it, but today's episode was a great interview. I think the only caveat is that he might have had a window open that I didn't hear in my headphones, but it came through pretty strong on the recording. And big thanks to our talented editor, because I think he removed most of the cars and the birds Noise is a lot easier to remove when it's the same noise, but he did a great job of fixing what I just didn't notice at the time. I was too wrapped up in the conversation, I guess. But as interesting as the first hour is, you know you would like the full show even more. 
in the extra time for members, we talked about alien resurrection technology, techno terraforming and preparing the landscape for something else, pockets of powerful global resistance, could AI be a container for a not-so-artificial superior intelligence? The game of chess, AI, and social engineering, AI and possession, public and private space programs and their occult leanings, light beings and digital avatars, Dr. Clemens, and the Order of the Dragon. Some of my favorite parts, no doubt, and I think Richard is going to include this as an extra to his own members as well. So if you're one of his, it's a nice bonus for you. Maybe you check out some other interviews that I've done. The Higher Side Chats has been at it for over a decade now. But I also wanted to throw this out. So when I was making the case that the Soviet space program founders like Konstantin Solkovsky also had occult interests, not unlike Jack Parsons, well, it's not like he was a member of the Agape Lodge or Pen Pals with Crowley, but some people have written about this, and you can find Konstantin Solkovsky and the Occult Roots of Soviet Space Travel by Michael Hagmeister on, funny enough, solkovsky.org. <laughs> but here's a small excerpt. The universe was for Solkovsky an ocean of bliss created by an almighty and benevolent, but for humans incomprehensible cause which he saw as a most kind and rational loving being and as a living organism, whose rationality and absolute will also defined the actions of mankind in its quest for happiness and reason-driven perfection. He also believed in the existence of immortal beings who were much more developed than humans and almost bodiless or ethereal, and therefore hardly visible to humans. He also believed that these alien beings, which are similar to angels or spirits in his description, constructively intervene in the lives of humans, read their thoughts, and send them messages through heavenly signs. And he assured that he has seen such signs himself several times. And it goes on to say, A magical, esoteric understanding of science and technology is still prevalent in today's Russia. This can be seen by... Russian cosmism, a hybrid ideological concept of which Sokovsky was later declared as one of its founders. So the first part sounds like another person on the forefront of science is getting weird messages from something out in space, like Tesla, apparently. And that's something to take note of, if you ask me. A higher intelligence probably knows how to tap into those who are capable of building the technology which strengthens the connection to these beings. So, I don't know, it seems like it's there. Maybe there's more research to be done. But it also kind of reminds me of the parallels in how we talk MKUltra to death, and then we realize, oh, the Soviet Union was doing some pretty wild psi experiments of their own. Totally different tone to those experiments, too, it seemed. But I would just think that the weird esoteric occult overlay to such a huge slice of the rocketry pie might mean something. I don't know what, but something. <laughs> One last thing related to this episode, but I was listening to the latest No Agenda episode this morning, and they played this clip of Bob Lazar talking to Art Bell in 2002, and Bob says something to the effect of, the UFOs seem to have two propulsion systems, the Delta and the Omicron. <laughs> 
Another thing that I'm not sure what it means, but it added another bit of connective tissue between UFOs, aliens, and the stuff we got going on today, because those Greek letters don't seem to be randomly chosen. They're definitely not sequential. So to me, it either says, yes, there is a connection, and whatever genetic code Moderna patented in 2017 that's contained in the COVID virus sequence could be another reverse-engineered alien artifact, or Delta and Omicron are code words to those in the know that this is another one of their psyops. The fact that Delta is the pyramid and Omicron is the eye, well, that always makes me lean towards the latter, but I figured that was just a little side thread worth mentioning before I totally close this out. Of course, in higher side news, we got a couple of meetups to plug. Anyone can make a meetup and find other like-minded people at HiresideMeetups.com. And the next few are March 2nd, we have one in Pacifica, California at the Humble Sea Brewing Company. Also on March 2nd, we have the Seattle Inquisition at Chuck's. And then on March 6th, we also have two. We have the Los Angeles Picnic Meetup. I like that. It's going to be at the L.A. State Historic Park. Maybe something I can make. And also on March 6th, we have the Cabin Boys Brewery Meetup in Tulsa, Oklahoma for THC fans. So come and hang out if you're in any of those areas or make a meetup of your own. But huge thanks to Richard Dolan. I thought about this one all week and really enjoyed it. So definitely let him know if you appreciate it because I'd love to keep him in the rotation, and he needs to feel like it was appreciated for that to happen. All right, that's about it, but it is tough to know which song to end this one with. Do we have more Sum 41 fans or more Ed Sheeran fans in the Richard Dolan sphere? Both of them are pretty on theme. All right, I think I got it. Take care of you and yours on the rocky road ahead. Much love, and I'll see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, alien virus engineers, totalitarian tiptoers, and agents of the World Economic Forum Global Takeover. Your fucking move. From space it was falling, its light started calling, it's making crop circles again. Just as I was looking up, it showed me all the hidden stuff, and now I'm all enlightened and zen. The masses is hard Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now I'm not asleep Don't obey the elite Gotta beat to the head Now I start to wonder Now we're not the sheep That they bred us to be Gotta beat to the head Now we start to wonder Now we start to wonder Since the visitors set me straight I encourage you to go When you see the saucers glow One by one we'll all end up awake Enlightening the masses is hard Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now we're not asleep Don't obey the elite Gotta be to the head Now we start to wonder No, we're not that they bred us to be Gotta be to the head Now
That is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box, and I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. 
Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.